Welcome back to the Slow Me Podcast. This is your host, Gordon Van. Today's episode is episode 31. If you haven't listened to the past 30 episodes, they're on iTunes. Just search iTunes uh, Snowmobiling Podcast. And also you can uh, listen to them on SoundCloud. Uh, just search uh, Snowmobiling Podcast on SoundCloud. And uh, all the episodes are up there, all uh, 30 episodes. So check them out. Uh, you can also see them on the Snowmobiling Podcast Facebook page. And we're on Twitter too and Google+. Plus. So Today's episode is with Ed Hackinson. Ed Hackinson is a, a longtime friend of mine. Uh, I met him uh, when he was at Yamaha Canada in the uh, in the 80s. He then uh, left the Yamaha and uh, started the company called Choco, Choco Clothing and Accessories. Um, great inspirational uh, interview here. Uh, you can hear how uh, Ed uh, you know grew up with polio, and, um, and just uh, the term- the determination of this guy is uh, incredible and uh, uh, very bright thoughtful person and uh, enjoy uh, Ed as a friend and uh, I've learned a lot from him. So here we go, Ed Hackison of Chuckle. Headquarters of Chaco and uh, Fast Eddie Motorsports Apparel, and uh, we're uh, we're talking with uh, Ed Hackison, the founder of uh, Chaco Clothing and uh, Fast Eddie uh, Action Wear. And uh, with me again is Bob Hogg and Phil Walto of Snowbird Television. And uh, we're going to be t- talking about uh, Ed's beginning, since <coughs> I was I was quite fortunate uh, uh, to have met Ed when he uh, when he started Chaco and. Uh, Kind of amazed at this uh, progress of his of his company, and uh, just seeing that he we went we all went through a, a tour of his building today, and it was it's amazing how uh, how far this company has uh, has uh, uh, really expanded and, uh, and and become the uh, the uh, global you are global mm-hmm. I suspect yeah and of uh, of uh, clothing and um, and uh, a leader in the in the snowmobile uh, clothing uh, um, industry industry. Automotive. So, <clears throat> and automotive, yeah. And automotive, yeah. So, how you doing, Ed? Good. Great, uh, great uh, seeing uh, seeing your new build, new building. I guess, but it's been a few, a few years. You've you built this uh, this building. Um, I think we should touch on on, on the building first. Um, you know, you explained uh, you know how it was built and uh, and the uh, the eco benefits that you uh, have in, in this building. Briefly, just describe this building. Um, Pretty fortunate, Gord. I have a son who's a builder, uh, Brad Hackinson, and he and I decided that the building we were in uh, needed to be expanded about a mile down the road. <clears throat> However, we couldn't expand it within the Stouffville community. They had bylaws that wouldn't allow us to do what we wanted to do on five acres down there, so we uh, bought a piece of property here at the corner of Uxbridge and uh, started coming up with, uh, well, we started with just a plain sheet of paper and said, 
what's the best case scenario that we could build a building for that would emulate what we need to emulate in our industry. So how can we make it airy? And this was important. How can we make every person that works for us feel that they're not in a cubicle? So open concept, uh, windows everywhere. There isn't a, a room that you can go into in this building, including the warehouse, that does not have a window in it that you can look out and see what's happening. So every single room is meant to be uh, airy, bright, bubbly, uh, so that the concept uh, of feeling good where you work um, is throughout the company. Next part w about it was uh, leaving a, a carbon footprint. Everybody talks about that. Not very many people do it. We decided to do something about it. So we um, did extensive survey, uh, an extensive survey on various forms of heat, cooling, uh, alternative energies. And we came up with uh, putting a couple 10K solar systems into our uh, building. If you go by, you'll see them on the roof. Uh, we get energy from the sun. We actually sell it to the grid. When we get a, an electricity bill, it's at zero with a plus on our side. They send us a check. In order to also augment that, we uh, did geothermal in the building, which means we put uh, ground source heat <coughs> into our heating and cooling system. Uh, very expensive, a lot of money, $450,000 at the time in a $4 million building, so it was 10% of costs, approximately a little over 10%. But we felt that uh, going forward it was important. And it has proven to be extremely positive. Perfect. Great, yeah, we had to let people know about that. It's a beautiful building and uh, well thought out. So Ed, let, let's, let's go back to uh, your childhood because th this is also extremely important. And I, and I think it, it, it all leads to where you've, uh, um, where you are now, uh, the, the person that you become. Um, you were born with polio. I got it shortly after I was born. But shortly, yes. Okay. Um, and at um, three months, your 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 mother, you know, it was diagnosed that you you had polio. So take take us after that. How, how did that process go? Um, the um, how, how was it diagnosed? And and, and what what exactly? is polio and, and basically how <clears throat> well poliomyelitis is a virus that you are uh, if you're unfortunate you have you contract it uh, when I was born in 1949 um, that was something that was quite common uh, it was a virus that they were trying to find a way to control uh, the salt vaccine came out shortly after I got polio 51-52 and what it does is it, it really kills the muscle, uh, the ability for your muscle to grow within your appendage. Uh, some people, it also affected their lungs, and they had to go into what they called at that time an iron lung mm -hmm. uh, in order yeah. to breathe. And, heard that. and I was lucky it didn't affect that. It just affected my, uh, my left leg and uh, my hip. And uh, so, so from there, it was how do we get mobility out of this? And, and so the, the natural move was... From Timmins to Markham, my parents moved, and a uh, hospital for sick children uh, was on our hit list for a long time. Nine years I spent <coughs> at the hospital, <coughs> and uh, nine years off and on, and 13 operations, and uh, allowed me to become more mobile. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 10, and this is where the, the, the snowmobile thing comes to fruition here, is um, and people will recognize the name, Whipper Watson. 
Um, you were one of the original Timmy children. Um, you, you traveled a lot um, across the country, you know, basically uh, uh, at these with seminars or... or um, there are fundraising information Information yep. fundraisers. You were one of the original Timmy, Timmy kids. Um, what, what was your, your, your job or your duties for, for that? Well, I, I was, uh, I, I took speaking, uh, speech lessons, uh, uh, at 10 years of age, uh, they taught me how to stand up in front of, you know, up to 500 people and, and talk about being handicapped, talk about what Easter Seals did for me, which, you know, remember back then you didn't have OHIP, you didn't have all the support systems. So my parents were farmers, um, actually, um, you know, farmers that were barely making a, a living. And so how do they afford operations that at that time were ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000? So people like the Lions Club and Kiwanis and Kinsmen, um, they actually had fundraisers that raised money for Easter Seals, and Easter Seals would then come and help families such as mine to uh, pay the hospitals and the doctors for the operations. So my job was to get out there and talk at these Lions Club's meetings, and uh, I was the... Uh, I was the poster child of this is what you get as a result. I don't know if that's good or not. But that's good. But that was uh, that was what it was about, and Whipper Billy Watson coached me, uh, took me through the learning process of how to speak. I had to write my own speeches. That was part of the process. And then uh, he took me across the country speaking. The, the other thing you had to do at that time, the only way you could become a Timmy, uh, I was, it was recommended by a nurse in the hospital that I should be considered to be a Timmy is you had to have good marks in school. So it was probably the only year that I had good marks in school. <laughs> and uh, so they plucked me out of there, and I, I, I missed a lot of school, but I would do homework with a tutor and, and that kind of thing. And, and that really, it, it probably set the pace for the way I think. Uh, what, did, what did Whipper Watson teach you? Uh, he, was, he was just a, an unselfish gentleman. Uh, he was so humble, it was unbelievable. Paid all his own expenses to go to the events, never took a dime from Easter Seals, they didn't pay his gas, or, um, but one thing he did teach me, he taught me about 1959 Cadillacs and how cars were interesting and I rode with him in his 59 Cadillac convertible a lot and uh, kind of brought me around on liking cars and really got my head into the automobile industry and then as well as that he, he taught me um, a lot of morals and ethics, uh, not that my parents didn't, but when you're on the road and you see all kinds of different things, your mind gets wandering, and and um, he would always bring everything back to center and state how clearly this is how you need to conduct your life. Tremendous man. So, you you began began your career. Did you begin your career with the Yamaha, or it was no? I another? began my career with um, out of university. I started with um, Datsun. Datsun? Okay. Yeah. Now Nissan? <clears throat> now Nissan. And um, when did you join Yamaha? I joined Yamaha in 1975, 1974, end okay. of 1974. And your duties there were? Uh, started out as, uh, frankly, they, they need a warehouse manager, and I I think I probably lied and told them I had great experience. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> I think, I, and then I got in there and found out I had to produce, so I learned pretty quickly what it was like to be a warehouse manager. And then uh, noticed that the accessory department was kind of floundering, and uh, I didn't like some of the things that they were making for accessories, and I asked if I could take that on as, as a job also. 
And so they gave me, they did more than that. They gave me uh, a marketing portfolio and, uh, and then the uh, accessory department as well as parts department. So I ha had to hire a person to replace me in the parts department and uh, then I took over the other two departments. And we, we started manufacturing garments and that's how I got in the garment industry. We started manufacturing garments uh, with the SRX emblem on them and mm -hmm. a black and white SRX jacket, which at that time, really, black and white? Uh, I don't think that's going to go in the snowmobile industry. Well, we sold 10,000 units in the first year. And uh, all of a sudden, I was the golden-haired boy with the uh, Japanese. And so back and forth to Japan. Uh, just learned their whole pro progress uh, process, much like Bob said. Uh, the Japanese were extremely good teachers on process management, and uh, that then set the pace for me for business for the rest of my life. Okay, and then, I mean, during your duties at Yamaha, uh, Whipper Watson became also involved with the Yamaha program. <clears throat> yeah, he did. Um, talk to us about the, the Whipper Watson rallies. And uh, fundraisers. Well, we bought, Whipper would come in and, you know, we obviously stayed together over the years. Uh, I would be invited to his house. Uh, his daughter taught me at a camp that I went to, Georgina Watson. And, and so our families became intertwined. And, and, of course, there was a lot of respect for Whipper. And um, invited him to Yamaha at one time because we were doing an event and we were sitting in the lobby at Yamaha, he and I just talking in. And, uh, and then Sue Brower came along for a meeting, and, and he said, why aren't we doing something with snowmobiles? And so he had actually been hired to do some work on a snowmobile program that Yamaha had that I kind of um, maneuvered a little. And then we started talking about how we could raise funds with snowmobiles, riding snowmobiles. So it, was be it was becoming a very popular sport at that time and um, just growing in the embry embryo stages from a volume point of view. And we came up with this cockamamie idea of uh, starting out a snoworama. And uh, I don't remember the owners of uh, the marina in Bradford, but that's where we first started off. Yeah. And we had the Eatons, and we had all the hitters from Toronto come out, ride snowmobiles. They got <clears throat> they, they would collect so much for, per kilometer to go towards the charity. Um, so we, we, had, uh, we had that to go along with the... Uh, Bobby Orr skate with the greats, which we had done a couple years earlier. And, and Whipper, again, was, you know, I could come up with the ideas, but I didn't have the horsepower to make it happen. Uh, Whipper would go and twist arms and, and arm wrestle people to get them involved. And uh, he just, he made it happen. He really was very instrumental. In making it was a hugely it. successful uh, fundraiser um, yeah. for, for probably five years, at least, that I would call it. At least it was hugely popular. Um, that still going today. Yeah, um, forty years later. So those yeah. two, uh, how much? Sorry, interrupt. How, between the two of them, who who was there, was the driving force? Was it Whipper or I forget her name? Sue Brown. Sue Brown. Who? Sue she, or, she was the front person, sort of, wasn't yeah. she? Sue would go out and beat the bushes, and Whipper would kind of settle it down and take over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, at, at your duties with, with Yamaha, you became friends with, with Bob Hogg, and, and you eventually took on the, the racing role? Yeah, we, at, had at a, we had a race director that uh, had some problems, and they needed somebody who understood racing and, and loved the sport, and, and so I was thrust into that role. And again, I said earlier is that um, Japanese, if you became a, 
uh, a favorite of the Japanese. They they happened to load all the workload on their favorites because they knew that if you're a workaholic, you could put in a few more hours and do more of what they wanted. And that's really how that happened. It was I, I didn't really apply for the job. It was somewhat osmosis because I was an enthusiast. And so like, Edo, uh, this weekend, would you please go and look after all of our executive opportunities at this race? Really? <laughs> I want to go racing. <laughs> oh, okay, no problem. Why you go racing? Please go look after this. And so, and then we then that emulated into, you know, graduated, pardon me, into the motocross team. Uh, I, I love Bob work, worked with Stevie Baker. I set the agendas for Stevie Baker with his, uh, uh, what were they called then? TZs. Yeah, super bikes, but um, I don't think they were called formulas then. I think. Uh, or MotoGP, before that, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, Anyway, you fast know, bikes in a way. Yeah, Daytona and Imola and, and, and Isle of Man and all those places that we went and, and uh, so I, I was on the peripheral of that. I certainly wasn't the leading edge of, of the superbike program, but was involved in it from an executive point of view, laying all the agendas out and working on budgets and, and getting the money for those folks, which meant I didn't have any money to go racing myself. And so we we now graduated into um, more of a complete program uh, that was there when Trev Dealey and Raymond Greff owned the rights to Canada. Raymond Greff owned the rights to Quebec for Yamaha. Trev Dealey owned the rights for the rest of Canada. And uh, Yamaha took over, and I was part of that changeover of, of uh, the guard. That, was, that would have been 76, 77. No, no, that would be if, if probably 72. It would have to be 72. 76, 75, 74, I started there. 72. There was a graduation of, of uh, Trev Dealey gradually yes. relinquishing. So there was a time oh, frame I see. that was... Okay. Uh, it didn't happen like that. They He had to phase out of some inventory. Yamaha had to phase in with their offices and, and that kind of thing. So it was around 74, 75, 76 in that range. Finalization of this. Yeah. 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 When Yamaha came and took it. They had a habit... Not a habit. They had a, a program that... They didn't want to be front and center. They set somebody else up as a distributor. If that distributor did well, then they'd come in and buy the distributor up, and then they would take over. So, hmm. so that you managed that um, for into the early eighties. Yeah, eighty-two. Eighty-two. Uh, right through till eighty-two, and uh, and then I come home one day, and my wife said, "I I think you married the wrong scenario." I said, uh -oh. I said, why? Why do you say that? She said, I, and I'll never forget this, she said, it's, it's about 11.15, and you've been gone since 6 o'clock this morning, and you were gone for a full two weeks not so long ago. I think you married the company. I don't think you married me. Oh. And uh, I think, I think <clears throat> we, wake up? we really need to sit down and talk about this because I don't want to carry on my life like this. You were a young young. Yeah, I was in my early 30s, and I was 33, 32, and I was like, yeah, good point. Uh, and, and I didn't realize, but the, the Japanese had done the... Morphing on you. Yeah, they put the arm around me, and, and you know, I, I was uh, like any racer. I was ego-driven, and when they said that I was doing wonderful, <laughs> I worked harder. <laughs> and they loved it. So what happened? This is, this is where, where I came in and, and, and met you. Um, during this transition, 
and it, that transition actually surprised myself too is uh, one day you're Yamaha and the next day you're not um, yeah. how, how long of a period was it where you decided you wanted to try something and you wanted to try this something different well and, what and we did was we, we started planning probably when I was 31 uh, really hard Heidi and I built a new house and uh, we paid it off and and we wanted to pay that house off um, before we made any decisions about going on my own. I, I got to tell you, this is really funny. I, I kept saying to Heidi, I need to go into my own business and invent a snap top like on the Coke cans because I don't <laughs> want to work for somebody else all my life. And, and that's how I kept pushing myself is I got to invent something. I have to come up with something. How can I invent something so I can be more independent? And, and I never did get to that invention side. And then... I just went in one day and said, I'm done. And the president said, what are you talking about? You cannot quit. I went, his name was Kasuki Abbey, and I said, I'm so tired of going to Japan. I'm so tired of not living at home and having my wife tell me that she's just about ready to leave me. But I have no choice, but I'm going to give you four months' notice. So, you know, I had a staff then of about 40, and so I, I said, you know, I need to do the proper thing, so I'm going to give you the notice, and then I'm I'm leaving. Where are you going? I don't know. I just know I'm not going to work for somebody else anymore. Oh, so you have you had a business on the side? No, and I didn't. I, I never, ever cheated. I, I was dedicated. When I say I'm going to do something, I was dedicated. I'm really, really dedicated. I loved Yamaha. It was a great place to work, and it was great people. And uh, so I quit, and... Uh, I never forget, I drove home and I said to Heidi, I just unemployed myself and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. <laughs> I got four kids. House was paid for. Them. House is paid for, yes. but I got four kids and nothing. I had a company car. I had to go buy a car. You bought that off of me. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> I brought that truck off you, didn't Yeah, it? you did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, okay, so you, you started a business. Not too smart, eh? You, you started a business. And you aptly, if I recall, named it after your dog, correct? Not totally. The dog was actually named after the business. Okay. Um, I, I had spent some time in Finland, Sweden, and Norway testing snowmobiles for Yamaha. As a little bit of a sideshow, I tested the Phaser and, uh, and then a, a new VMAX that we had. And Heidi and I spent some time in Finland. And we, we met a gentleman named Esko Paltinen at a hockey game in Helsinki. And he owned... Coho Hockey Sticks, and um, Joffer, Joffer. Yoko. Y Yoko, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoko Snowcross product. And I literally was enamored by the guy because he told me, he said, you have Markham on the back of your jacket? Yeah. He goes, I'm, I'm moving to, Mar to Markham. I went, no, no, Markham's in Canada. He goes, oh, yeah, I know that. He said, I'm moving my company. I said, what's your company? He goes, well, it's a... The hockey stick company. <laughs> I said, oh, what's the name of your hockey stick company? He goes, well, that company is called Coho. Fuck. <laughs> I heard of you. I'm there, you own Coho? Oh, yes, I, I own that company. And Sinisalo. Remember Sinisalo? Yeah. Well, Sinisalo still is around. Yeah. Sinisalo, Yoko, and Coho. Esco owned all of them. Mm -hmm. And so we became fast friends. Uh, every Friday night, we'd fly from Rovaniemi down to Helsinki, meet with Esco and his wife, go to dinner, go to the hockey game. And we fly back on Sunday after partying with him a weekend. So when I went out on my own, 
uh, I like Yoko, Coho, Simi Salo, Choco. <laughs> That's how we came up with the wow. name. And so, so that was a your 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 first products. Um, you you were um, you, you started selling tire gauges, ATV tire gauges. Well, this was actually my first product, right there. Uh, however, in order to pay for it, uh, I open up. I literally was at home. I open up a magazine, and there's an ad in there for a company called AccuGauge, out of Chicago. And at that time, ATVs ATV were four, four pound four pounds you could put in the tires. Right. right. And so I found AccuGauge, and I said, "Look, you don't know me, but I'm a former executive for me. I'm a hunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I quit. Who knows everybody in the world? <laughs> yeah. And I quit, and I'm going on my own, and I need your product to start my company. Why? So because nobody has a tire gauge here that'll measure from zero to four pounds. And your tire gauge does, and I'd like the rights for Canada. No problem. I still deal with him today. No kidding. So, I seen I one out in your showroom. There. There I still deal with him today. Yeah. And so I probably have one right here. Anyway, I said, but here's the deal. I said, I don't have any money. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to go to British Columbia, and I want you to send me a skid of tire gauges, and I'll sell them, and then I'll send you the money, and then mm -hmm. when I get to Calgary, send me another skid. They were based in Chicago. I don't know why. His name is Brian Pardon. And I don't know why, but he bought into it. Wow. And by the time I got to Newfoundland, I had made $90,000. Holy. So that allowed me to kickstart uh, where I would lost some money in ordering some leathers from Edco Garment Industries. And uh, so that's that's how we got going. So, but I went so to every you go, So if you made that much money going going. East, why wouldn't you just do the same thing going west again? I did. It, was, it was always saturated. I did. No, I was away from home for six months, though, in okay. doing that. And so I'd have to send Heidi money home by, by uh, what's the, what was that? Briggs? <laughs> no, but it was called uh, Western Union. Okay. And so then the next year I started in Newfoundland, went east, okay. went west. And so I visited every dealer. But what I was doing is, is I was getting the dealer's name, I was getting what he liked, what he didn't like, his wife's name, his kid's name. Mm -hmm. And I put in a chronicle in a book. So every time I came up with a new product from there on, I'd phone him. Hey, John, Ed from Chaco. You know, by the way, is your golf game improved at all? And your kid's playing baseball. Has he got to the major leagues yet? <laughs> and so he, nobody ever would remember that kind of thing, and I wouldn't either. But I wrote it all down, and then I'd go back, and that's how I'd do my sales calls. You built up a database. Yeah. Yeah. Before it was popular. And then I did something that was really unethical is uh, I got a uh, Snowgoer magazine. And I wish nothing, I... Nothing unethical in Snowgoer magazine. Yeah. This was totally unethical <laughs> by my... my uh, so I took a magazine. This is our catalogs now. So I took a magazine and I did... So I had three snowmobile suits. So I, I'd come to the conclusion that nobody was doing a decent snowmobile suit after I left Yamaha. I remember your first suit, by the way. Yeah? Yeah, the one with the shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> I've had Michael Jackson was hot then, so I made a sure. flared show. Whatever works. Yeah. Anyway, that Yamaha, when I left, they dropped the program. Really? And Brian Gerard was there, and he was pissed off because they didn't carry on what we had built. Right. So, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the snowmobile clothing business. So, um, I got, I, Heidi and I designed our clothing on our table. I got Snowgoer magazine. I put a full-page ad in. Didn't know how I was going to pay for it. <laughs> and I put in there... Chaco snowmobile suits, this, this, this. You can buy it at these dealers. The dealers have never seen me. <laughs> really? Never seen me. 
<laughs> Dealers would call. Hey, we have customers come in that want that suit. Oh, good. I can send you one. Yeah, okay. No kidding. That's yeah. how I got going. Yeah. I didn't have any money. So that's how I got going. I don't think he had much product. Did you have any product? Uh, yeah, I had built some product, but, you know, what? whatever, $5,000 for the product. So I, I, that's, how I, that's how Choco got born because I didn't have an ad budget. Uh, I, I was one person. How do I drive the country again? I could only call so many people because it was expensive to call the dealers. There was no computers at the time. And so how do I do it? You probably had four people. If I recall, you had like four people in your office. In my garage. Your garage, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I so wasn't there a, like a, like today that would be a, a no-no? It was then too. Well, it was. Yeah. And, and, but they, but because you, they made money on your product, it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, that, that's how we kind of got that. So you started with, uh, there was a, a couple, a couple models of suits. <clears throat> um, the next year, more yeah. and more. Gloves. We fell on our boots. face, though. We, we fell flat on our face uh, a year in, in that we had two accounts that uh, did not pay us and uh, hurt us badly, one in British Columbia and uh, one in northern Quebec. And so I had to go and work for a company called Borden & Elliott selling parts. And uh, I got a job with them as parts manager in their warehouse, and I went and sold parts for a year to get enough money to carry on. Wow. And so Heidi was shuffling, sending product out while I was working at Borden Elliott to get money to whatever. That would have been an easy t time for most people just to give up. Well, I, I, I probably came close a few times because, like I said, I was crying going down the road going, what does it take to make this happen? I work hard. I'm, I, I'm honest. I don't cheat people. Uh, I put in whatever hours I need to put in. What am I doing so wrong? And the bottom line was... When I was a Yamaha, I went like this, and things happened. Mm -hmm. When I went on my own, I go like this, and it's like, who are you? <laughs> Ed who? <laughs> and so then the Ed who became, oh, yeah, that chocolate product is really good. Yeah. And it's warm. And we did something really unique. Mm -hmm. We put mylar inside of our suits, and so our suits were hot, like oh. literally hot. Okay. And they didn't breathe with a sucker, but... They were hot, and so people went, this Chaco stuff is really bitching stuff, but it's warm. And so we didn't tell anybody for years and years and years until people started cutting our clothing apart and trying to find out what made us mm -hmm. so good. So that's what... That's so in, your, in your early years, you, you mentioned the, the European influence. Um, your association with Lynx. Yeah, while I was in Finland, uh, met, um, I met a gentleman named... Um, Pekka Oyanen. God, I just had his card out. I was looking for it. And Pekka was the president of Lynx and in Rovaniemi, Finland. And he said, I'm trying to open up a distribution in Canada. Uh, would you be interested in helping me? Now, Bombardier wasn't, now BRP was not really, even though they were BRP Bombardier products, they were, they were in, in Finland. And they had no intention of ever bringing them to North America. No. And it was kind of a oddball company, but it was dominant. It so was dominant in Europe. The company so, was so called just Nord Stop here for, for those for us that don't know. So Lynx was an independent co company? So pretty semi-independent, yeah. And Bombardier now, engines. Uh, but, pardon? Yeah. Bombardier engines. Well, no, they but bought Rotax engines Ro out of Ro Austria. Yeah, so does, does Bombardier own Lynx now? It does. They do now, yes. Okay. I'll tell you why. 
Well, the reason they own links is I set up 85 dealers here. You scared them. I remember, I, and I remember it too. <laughs> and so they paid me to set up the dealers, and so everybody knew me in the snowmobile industry. Sure. So I set up the dealers. We were just we shipped 650 snowmobiles, and Bombardier came in and bought the company. <laughs> no, and shut it down. Yeah, but the good part is they, didn't, they shut down the distributorship. Yeah, in, in Canada. Yeah, it, but you, but you, um, also brought the first European to North America. It wasn't Tony Heikkinen. There's a guy named Paulie Pippola. Pippola. Yeah. Pippola. Yeah, um, he, he you, had your, you, you had your race team on a links. So talk, talk, talk about that, about uh, why, you, why you brought this European over to a, newly, a new sport. Well, I met, I met Pippola over there, and he was a good racer, and he raced... A, he was the champion, European champion at the time. Yeah, and he, he raced in a series called Snowcross. And I came back here, and everybody was still racing Oval. I went, Oval's history. Mm-hmm. And everybody kept saying, ah, everybody but Canavan said... No, you're crazy. Paul Weatherall and all the good old boys and the Oval and the Vandolers and all those folks said, uh, no, no, Snowcross is never going to go. And I went, oh, yeah, it's going to go. And so I bought Pipola over here, and we kicked ass. Peter Gibbons and mm-hmm. Pauli Pipola, we went to a Snowcross race in Winnipeg, set it up ourselves. I put the money up to it, and, and then we went in and kicked ass, too. But Yeah, this was a Chaco-sponsored team, I remember, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What year was that? 83. 83, 80, 83, 83. 80, 80, no, it was, 82 or 83. No, it was 82. Yeah. And when did Ken have that super snowcross sort of sled that he had? Well, what year was that? Was that the same? Well, snowcross started in um, 80, 81. Yeah. 81. The OSRF finally, OSRF had a couple snowcross races. Yes. And Wasega Beach. And Ken then, and I and pushed then, And then Ken started his series. Um, and... Um, but the, um, the the race that you were at was uh, OSRF race, so yeah. Ken's Ken series wasn't started yet. Okay. But this was an OSRF sponsored or, or uh, sanctioned snowcross race, and um, there was only a dozen or so snowcrossers. All on, I mean, our sleds weren't as good as the Lynx's by far. Mm-hmm. It was a the Lynx was a superior sled, and then you have a superior rider, but with Pauli Pippola and he he dominated. Well, Pauli Pippola rode for the Nord Track factory. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I, this is the reason I was going through my cards earlier. That's the name of the company. That's the president of the company, Pekka Oyenen. And he was in Rovaniemi, Finland. Yeah. And so yeah. we were... And then we brought another machine over here called a FinCat. Fin, I tried it out in, your, out in your driveway. One complete track. Flexible track. You no must, skis. You must. Yeah. A, flexible, a flexible track, one-piece track, and the track actually steered. I don't know what to say. Like I have no questions. I just it's over yeah. my head. So I tried. I tried that. I, I I tried it in your driveway there, and uh, now I mean a sled like that would be still do well in in utility fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was something that the fellow who invented it in Finland. I met him at a drinkathon one night, <laughs> and he had he had part of his face cut away from cancer, oh, and he said, "I'm trying to do this uh, fin track." Fincat. Fincat. And uh, I don't know if it will show anything here. Well, the images. And, and he, um, he, he uh, said, I need somebody in Canada. So I, I also brought some of them over. <laughs> wow. And then he died, and the company went south. I tried to bring it over here, but I couldn't buy the rights. No, it doesn't have one. I couldn't buy the rights from his family. And uh, 
but I just felt it, it really had some... Well, you would know. Yeah, it had some great capability. and Utility Finland, capabilities, Finland a, for sure. Finland was a big part of my that portion of my life. They're way smarter than us on, on winter stuff. Way smarter. Yeah, that must have been an interesting time for you. Trying to build a company, having a couple of setbacks, and, that, you know, and then Snowcross and launching a successful alignment, and everything... Snowcross took off for Ken, and for you, the product line just took off. Yeah, I, I partnered with Ken for a while on Snowcross because we both believed in it. And uh, Ken said, I'm going to make a series out of this. I said, Ken, whatever I can do to help you. And, and because nobody else believed in us, Ken and I were the only ones that believed in it. I think I took Ken to Finland, too. I'm not sure. Mm. And, and they had starting gates that were right, just like motocross. And it was so far ahead of us. It was like, this is the sport, man. This oval racing stuff that we've been brought up on, you know, we have to change. This is not the way it's going to be anymore. Well, I was a, I was a spectator of that era. I remember during the during parts of the afternoon, you go to the, you'd watch the inside of the track, and that's where the snow cross would be, and then back to the outside for the ice holes, then back to the inside, and even sometimes they'd pile snow on the ice track, do some snow cross, clean the track off, and then continue with ice hole. So it must have been an inter- interesting transition for you to watch, both as a sponsor and and, and a lover of racing to see a, a something develop. Well, and you have to understand that the Vandolers. <clears throat> And the good old boys club, it's kind of like in stock car racing, we brought it to a new era in Canada in some of the things we did. But the good old boys were there. The future boys. Mm-hmm. It's true. That's what happened. Production sleds were starting to lean more towards longer travel suspensions. Well, how, how, do you get, how do you get the OEMs to sponsor when only Skidoo is out there racing a twin track? Yes. Right? How do, you get Articat, how do you get Articat, Polaris, Skidoo, Yamaha, how do you get them back in? You get them racing sleds that you can go buy on Monday that you race on Sunday. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why the sport is now more going to cross-country racing than snowcross. Yes. Because it's going to be coming, you can buy that sled now. Yes. And they're making the rules in cross-country that you have to have a trail sled. And 14 inches of travel for the mountain running, running up in the bowls, you know, Don Galloway from Edmonton. He, he Don Galloway worked for me at one time at Yamaha, and Don was, you know, he's still a lifetime friend of mine. He owns Cycle Works in Edmonton. He owns six stores now. But he worked for me at Yamaha, and uh, he was the one that taught me about running up in the bowls and having 16, 14, 16 inches of travel on the sled. Wow. Yeah, yeah we've had a great evolution, you know, in that sport. It's been mm-hmm. phenomenal. All right, so we'll get back to Chaco now. Yeah. <laughs> Something you enjoy talking about. Um, where, um, where, where's your vision with Chaco now? I mean, you, you're, you've, you're, um, you still own the company, but you're, yeah. you've, you've licensed it off to another to another. No, I, I've licensed the Snowmobile division off only. Chaco is a is a multifaceted company. We we have um, a, a lot to do with Snowmobile because we still own the brand, and so we've licensed out the brand. So we've never ever sold our company. We've just licensed out the brand. But then Chaco Motorsports was born, and Chaco Motorsports designs, develops, and manufactures product for General Motors, Ford, Dodge, um, Snap-on Tools, Mitsubishi, Toyota. Um, and, and those people um, now take our product and when you go and get your car serviced uh, and you buy a hat in the service department or a t-shirt or whatever, it's ours. We make it. So the vision for Chaco, we, we're in a couple other areas too. We have a Case IH license. We have a New Holland license in the farming industry. Um, for garments as well? Yeah. So if you go to a Case IH dealer or a New Holland dealer, we do all their apparel. Um so licensing has been a big part of our business, but we've moved into another era recently, and that is we've trademarked a couple of things that we think is our insurance policy. We've trademarked 
Farmers Feed Families as a brand for farmers. We've trademarked the word tool crazy for the auto industry and tools and, and what we do with Snap-on and those kinds of things. And then we've, we've trademarked a couple of other opportunities and that is uh, cliches. Wrench Twister University is a, a trademark that we've, we've now taken into, we, we do England and Germany, we do that in English. Uh, Wrench Twister University is a very popular brand over there. Where we are going is Chaco is probably going to stay in the snowmobile uh, auto industry. But our, our future growth is Fast Eddie because Fast Eddie is going to be a brand. Fast Eddie will be Fast Eddie airplanes, Fast Eddie boats, Fast Eddie toboggans, Fast Eddie whatever. And so we own that brand also. Uh, my daughter, uh, Jamie, actually owns it. But we are now just in the stages. We've just hired a new group of artists, uh, different from our automotive artists. And we are now going to grow the Fast Eddie brand. Chaco is probably an old brand that will do very well where it is, um, but we need a fresh new appearance, and Fast Eddie is going to be that fresh new appearance. If you take a look behind you, that's the logo that we're uh, emulating. So you, so your your strategy is the Chaco is is a is Chaco's been around for so long. Guys like me and these guys were familiar with it, and to try and make that better. It's just making Chaco better, so that so there's no way you can get the excitement from a Fast Eddie product than you can from Chaco because it's Chaco is a mature yeah that's brand. What that's a better way, and we, we can reinvent it like you <clears throat> reinvent a restaurant. Yes, we can, but it still appeals to the older generation, mm -hmm. kind yes. of forty and up, uh, where Fast Eddie can appeal to fifteen and up. Yes, and so we we, we want to get into the dot com, e commerce, social media area. And Fast Eddie has that social media connotation. So Chaco's not going to die by any means, but it, it's probably going to be satisfied with being a mature brand. Do you or, compete? So, sorry, Gordon. So, so do you compete with Chaco? Uh, no. Fast Eddie is really totally separate. Right now, Fast Eddie distributes some product, but it needs to be its own brand. And so we've already got our line of T-shirts that we've done that are kind of cool. Uh, kind of neat, uh, but we need to go more than that. We need to do a lot of other items that, that would grow fast, Eddie. That's the next generation needs to do that. Jamie and Jesse, my two daughters, their husbands, uh, my son, they need to do that. I'll, I'll probably have to finance it, but uh, they need to go out and brainstorm it and get their juices flowing and, and just do it through social media and Forget about the typical catalogs that we do now and the way we advertise. And, oh. and so my thoughts are this is an era for them to now take and run up the flagpole. The, the Chaco apparel, snowmobiling, snowmobiling apparel, is going to evolve into more fa Fast Eddie design? I, I would say so. I could see Fast Eddie becoming a larger part of, who knows, Fast Eddie may be the new snowmobile line. Would that be? <laughs> so where, where, do you, where do you see your position now in, in, in snowmobile clothing? Uh, I, I, think we're, I think we've lost substantial amount of traction. I think we're probably fourth or fifth in the industry. Um, but I think we could easily come back to first. I, I think... Um, Is there a time frame that you may want to try doing that? Probably a fairly uh, long time frame, two years. 
I, I think it absolutely is ready to come back. Uh, I think we've started on the way. I, I think FX Art is a heck of a job right now. Top quality product, nice designs, very progressive. Um, and I, I think we could easily, I think we could easily go back and compete with them. I think we've done a lousy job of doing that in the last five years, six years. Is that because the other divisions they kind of kind of took a yeah, little they, bit of focus away from Chaco? Yeah, they dropped the ball. Yeah, not a question. They dropped the ball. And is there a, a, a big hunger to bring it back, bring Chaco, Nobel Holding back up to in, in a different level? in a different way? Yes. Uh, very much so. I, I think that was our heritage. That's where I started. That's what gave me gave my family the opportunity to grow and and <clears throat> build things like we've built. Uh, and uh, I would say probably before I leave this earth, I would like to revive that. I think it's time. Yeah. Any um, any other products you got coming up coming up uh, developing? No, I think the only thing I would say, Gord, is we, we are going to go deeper. We are going to go deeper into motorsports. We're probably going to build a new building next year and, and run a motorsport program with hot rods and and race cars and in what series or whether we'd stay in the Canadian Tire Series or stay in NASCAR. I don't know, but you know we got a we got twenty five or thirty muscle cars uh, in our shop and. And uh, we have several race cars, some different, you know, we got late models, we got NASCAR Canadian Tire Series cars, we have drag race cars. Uh, so I, I just want to stay in motorsports. So I would say my girls are taking over this business uh, directly. They already have started taking it over. And I'm probably, I'm probably going to go more into motorsports. And that means the juices will be flowing and I'll be calling them every so often saying, you should go this direction, you should do this. And. After they hang up a few times, they'll probably pick up. It should be noted <laughs> you finished second overall, almost winning the Canadian Tire NASCAR Series this year. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Jason's a heck of a driver. Uh, not only that, I, I want to say something that's kind of unique. It's that he's a really good driver that Bob and I were back when, but he's also a nice man. And so, you know, good people attract good people. And so I think he'll attract more good people into the motorsport industry. And I'd like to be back there as a quarterback saying, how can I help this girl? Because so. ever since I've known you, you've been a motorsport enthusiast. Yeah, and I like being in the background. I, as you know, I'm not a guy that likes being up front. I hear very little from me. I just, I'm kind of quiet, stay behind, and other people can be up front. Um, but I, I like building. I like literally building i mean we're debt free and, and we're going to build another building for motorsports there is no question unless i drop dead tomorrow I've heard that. then my kids will probably do because we are i'm fortunate i have two boys and two girls and uh, my two girls are very motorsport driven mm -hmm. my two boys don't like motorsports at all well each family is different you can never you know just because you have a, an offspring doesn't mean he has your no. Genes or and we've been very careful, Bob, to, to make sure that we don't try and make our kids something that we thought we could be. Um, yes. My kids do whatever they want to do. And I'll support them in whatever they want to do. But, you know, if I was a hockey player, I'd probably not want them to be in hockey. If I'm a, in the race car business, I probably wouldn't want my kids to be in the race car business. I have a daughter who happens to be tied in with her husband who loves being in the race car scene. I never ever asked her to do that or pushed her to do that or mm -hmm. she just 
likes it. So, good for her. Yeah. Snowmobiling, Gord, my heart's still there. So like Bob's, uh, you know, uh, snowmobile, snowmobiling, uh, the opportunity to get back in the industry. Um, if I get back in the industry the way I say I will, you'll notice it. <laughs> <laughs> My time up? Your time is up, sir. Okay. Sorry, guys. All righty. We should I wrap it up here. Like and um, the guy that hit the hay bale, it's his fault. <laughs> we will wrap it up here. Uh, thanks to Ed Hackison, Bob Hogg, Phil Molto. And um, enjoyed talking with, uh, with Ed and uh, rehashing some old stories. And it was great talking with you all. Good. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, sorry to uh, have to uh, jump out, but I do. Uh